Welcome to Rethink, the future of skilled nursing, a podcast from Skilled Nursing News. I'm your host, Maggie Flynn. As the new year opens, skilled nursing facilities are settling into the new Medicare payment system and trying to establish their place in the healthcare continuum. Fred Bentley of the consulting firm Avalier Health joins us to talk about what SNFs should expect in 2020, why larger chains are looking at launching their own accountable care organizations, and the ups and downs of the patient-driven payment model's early days. We'd like to thank our podcast sponsor today, Point Click Care. They know financial health is integral to your success and want to help you reach your goals. Visit www.pointclickcare.com to learn how they can help you achieve financial success. I'm joined today by Fred Bentley at Avalier. Fred, thank you so much for making the time to join me for the podcast today. Happy to uh, participate. So to start off, can you just tell me a little bit about the work that you've been doing on the skilled nursing side with Avalier, and we will build from there. Sure. So Avalier has been around, we're a DC-based firm, been around for actually 20 years, starting next year. And we have been in the post-acute space for all 20 years. Our first client was Kindred Healthcare many moons ago. And we continue to work with them, but have branched out into the entire, I would say we, we serve the entire continuum of post-acute providers, but really have focused on skilled nursing for the better part of our uh, company's history. And there are a couple of different ways that we support skilled nursing providers. Some of the work is the big picture, help us think through what's going to happen over the next three to five years. Mm-hmm. Uh, how is the policy landscape going to shift? what's going on with market dynamics, what's happening with our upstream partners, what are hospitals and health systems thinking about. Questions on everyone's mind. Yes, indeed. As as always, I mean, it's it's still the lifeblood of, you know, SNFs is is, uh, our hospitals and and health systems. So it's helping think through how is the market changing? How is policy changing? What does that mean for our business? So we do a lot of strategic planning work, but some of the more targeted work and more recently, we've done a lot more analytic work. And uh, not to sound like an infomercial, but we have access to a massive treasure trove of claims data. Mm -hmm. So we are helping our clients do everything from understand their market share, how their market share has shifted, referral patterns, how they stack up against the competition. And I think some of the most exciting work is thinking about, you know, how could these SNFs, could they launch an ACO or partner with physicians to launch their own accountable care organization or launch an iSNP. So that's the kind of analytic work that we've been doing on on behalf of uh, SNFs for a number of years now. On the ACO front, is there a lot of interest in doing that? Because ACOs have, at least according to some of the providers and consultants that I've spoken to, they have something of a bad rap in the skilled nursing world. <laughs> they absolutely do have a bad rap. And I think in many of those instances, or many instances, it's well-deserved bad rap. We can get into that, but at a high level, it is absolutely the case that ACOs have been hammering SNFs and really looking at skilled nursing as an opportunity for savings, either by Uh diverting patients to home with home health or no post-acute benefits or really chiseling away at length of stay. So, and in fact, I was just at a conference and, and co-presenting with an ACO executive and somebody from the audience asked, you know, and so what's your view on post-acute care? And he said, oh, well, you know, skilled nursing has been a great opportunity for us to <laughs> capture savings. And I winced at that. So all that to say, there is a bad rap there. By the same token, you look at the 
proliferation of ACOs and the fact that they have not been this flash in the pan sort of phenomenon fad. Yeah. They are well entrenched. And in fact, I know the market you're coming from, the Chicagoland, you know, there are four or five really big ACOs. Yeah. They're not going anywhere. If anything, you know, they are firmly entrenched. They're going to be expanding. And so it does start to beg the question of, you know, if you are a skilled nursing executive, say what you will about ACOs, but how do you engage with them? And for a subset of our larger, more sophisticated clients, skilled nursing clients, it is a question of could we launch an ACO? You know, can we partner with physicians and get more actively involved in actually running an ACO? Without naming the providers, can you give a sense of just how big they are and what kind sure. of scale you need to actually absolutely. launch an ACO if you're a Yes, sniff? yes, absolutely. So these are SNF chains that are, most of them are multi-state. Okay. And they tend to have, I want to say, anywhere from 30 to 50 SNFs, if not more. Okay. So, you know, fairly sizable organizations. And in terms of for an ACO... You have to have a minimum of 5,000 beneficiaries, Medicare beneficiaries, attributed to the physicians who are part of your ACO. And we believe, and our number, the numbers bear this out, that you want to be closer to 8,000 attributed lives, just so you have the scale. And especially, you know, when we're talking about patients who are being treated in, you know, nursing facilities, these are very complex, expensive beneficiaries, many of whom, despite your best efforts, you know, we'll go to the ED, we'll get admitted, get readmitted. So yeah. all the more reason that you need that, that kind of scale. So you put those numbers together, that really does winnow down the number of SNF chains that really could conceivably pull this off. Is the number of patients that would be eligible an issue as well, just given how many patients in long-term care setting tend to be Medicaid patients, or does that not become a factor as much? Um, it's a complicating factor, but Medicaid beneficiaries, so dual Duals can qualify okay. for this, right? It would be the Medicare portion of their benefit mm -hmm. um, that the ACO would be managing. So I suppose, do you expect to see that come to fruition next year or in the next couple of years? How long would it take for that to happen? And yeah. is that something you expect to see 2020? I would anticipate a few of these organizations starting to launch ACOs in 2020. You know, Genesis already has an ACO yes. and has had an ACO for, for a little while now. So there's a track record there. They have the benefit, obviously, of they own mm -hmm. a very, you know, robust physician group. So that kind of, you know, that, that makes it a lot easier for them to launch. But again, you know, we have a number of clients that are in conversations with physician groups. How do they start those conversations? It happens a number of different ways. I think more often than not, what I've seen are the physician groups approaching the post-acute providers and senior living yeah. facilities. So I don't want to limit it just to SNFs. Um, mm -hmm. This is part of a broader discussion. But these are physicians who are independent practices, but in you know many respects, or in most cases, specialize yeah. in treating patients in nursing facilities or assisted living. And there are really powerful incentives right now for physicians to get involved in ACOs and to get into what are called advanced APMs. Not to bore everybody, but there's <laughs> a thing called MIPS, which is the new payment model for physicians. And what you need to know is that physicians can earn additional money if they are part of one of these programs. Uh, or one of these models. So they have this really strong incentive 
to launch ACOs. And I honestly think a lot of those physicians have seen their counterparts in a market or in other markets launch ACOs have become successful. So they're now saying, well, gosh, why can't we launch our own ACO? We'll partner with you know, the SNF or the nursing home or the, uh, the assisted living facility and we can do gain sharing arrangements mm -hmm. with them. So that's one route that I've seen where, and it's not that a SNF chain has launched the ACO, but they are They're clinically, operationally, and financially integrating with the ACO or partnering with them. So, you know, a very meaningful uh, relationship rather than just being sort of the downstream provider. But in a few cases, some of the larger SNF chains have been actively doing the homework and we've been helping them to assess what is their patient population? What are the opportunities? Who are the physician groups they want to be targeting? Mm -hmm. Who are those high quality, high volume provider groups? And then we're arming them with that data and they are proactively going to the physicians and saying, hey, we could do something here that would be a win-win. Gotcha. So ACO is being launched by SNF, something to look for in 2020. Right. What else would you say is something to keep an eye on for next year? Obviously, PDPM is on everybody's mind, but it's also very early days when it comes to PDPM. So yes. what, I guess, would you expect to see on that front, generally speaking, Yeah, I think, knowing it's a prediction? You know, the, the yes. And it's always fun to speculate at this time <laughs> of year because nobody's going to listen back this time <laughs> next year, right, and call me on it. Yeah, so my impression with PDPM is that, right, it, we are still early days. It's been somewhat rocky. But Interesting. Yeah, it's been somewhat rocky. And I think some of this is just like working out, out the, the administrative kinks of the program. Mm -hmm. But what is going to happen in 2020, I think, you know, as I see it with the clients that we work with, there are the SNF chains and the, the, the skilled nursing organizations that got ahead of this. Yeah. Understood what's coming. They are not sweating right now and I think they have adapted to the new world for those organizations what they are they've already started doing and will continue to do into next year is really looking at so how much therapy do we provide what is clinically appropriate now that we don't have those powerful incentives to you know maximize therapy yeah. minutes but we still have a duty to treat the patient and treat them as efficiently and effectively as possible, what is that right level? Mm -hmm. So I still see for those big chains some some big movements around you know how much contract therapy they have and how much therapy they're offering, and whether they want to bring that in house or continue to outsource it. I think those are. I mean, if you're a contract therapy company, that's a big big deal. But I think for sniffs in that bracket, in that sort of the more advanced group. They're okay, right? And it's it's a matter of, I think, tweaking and modifying. There are going to be the smaller groups, though, that, you know, unfortunately did not get ready for this. And what is going to happen over the course of next year is a painful realization for some sooner rather than later of the old clinical model, the old business model is not working mm -hmm. anymore. They are also going to realize that, and hopefully not too belatedly, that they really need to invest in documentation. No, that's not a sexy uh, topic to be speculating on, but it is absolutely something that, unfortunately, I think a lot of the smaller organizations have been slow to mm -hmm. hire up for that and take that seriously. And that is, that's the name of the game. And, and you look at, for hospitals, health systems, physician groups, especially for health plans, documentation is everything. Yeah. Because you can deliver the best care and you can manage the most complex patients, but if you are not capturing that data... Your payment does not reflect that. That's the new rule in mm -hmm. PDPM. 
You mentioned that there had just been some, you know, a little bit of a rocky element in terms of just the general administrative stuff, and that's kind of to be expected when it goes from rugs on one day to yeah. PDPM the next day. So that's not really surprising. I am curious, though, have you seen anything that can't be attributed to just that hard transition, anything that was unexpected for people or just things that they maybe thought they had a handle on that they didn't? Documentation might be one of them. It might be something that is, you know, playing out in ways they didn't expect. But I'm just curious whether you've seen anything that yeah, wasn't it's usual. A, it's a good question and... Probably my cop-out response is it's still early, yep. and we have you know we don't have a ton of data to work with. I do think that documentation piece is one thing to say we need to have coders and folks doing documentation and to invest in that, and then because every payment model you know devils in the details. Mm -hmm. What are we supposed to be documenting? Do we even know that we're documenting this accurately? Those are the things that you know. I guess they're not. It wasn't a surprise per se, but it's one thing to like plan for it, and then another thing to actually live it and yes. experience mm -hmm. it. You know, I think another interesting piece of this for me, and this may be. A little bit outside of what the listeners might be expecting is that I've actually had a number of hospitals and health systems. Very interesting. Coming to me and asking, so what is this whole thing? And I've heard, gotten wind that, you know, there are big changes afoot in the skilled nursing space. And these are change, uh, hospitals and health systems that don't have their own, you know, yeah. meaningful sniff business. <laughs> but they're really looking at, you know, we've done all this work to build a high-performing SNF network. Yeah. And we now need to understand and get smarter about what's happening to our partners downstream. And are we going to be seeing dramatic disruptions to that SNF network? And in, in other words, are we going to be seeing SNFs falling by the wayside because they can't, you know, survive under the new model? Mm -hmm. More importantly, though, they're trying to get a sense of, so what does this mean in terms of clinical care? Gotcha. Right. So we are discharging our patients. We've got this SNF network. We as a hospital and health system industry are just starting to get a little smarter about what happens to the patients. And now the payment model is getting flipped on its ear, arguably in good ways. And that's what I've tried to reinforce is I do yeah. think that this payment model and I can already hear some boos <laughs> from the audience. But I think, you know, it does a better job of aligning patient need, mm -hmm. you know, or clinical care to patient need and reimbursement. So I tried to reassure, and this is, uh, holds true not only for hospital and health system executives, but ACO executives of, look, I think if anything, this PDPM moves the incentives for SNFs closer to, you know, the incentives that you all have and, you know, this pressure to obviously always keep readmissions down, but to also match clinical care to the actual underlying patient need and not just, you know, run up the therapy numbers yeah. or minutes because that's what gets incented. So I want to shift gears a little bit. I wanted to make sure I asked you about something that keeps coming up over and over again on a very ind individual state level, which is the issue of Medicaid reimbursement. Mm -hmm. I am curious, can you just speak a little bit to <coughs> what skilled nursing facilities need to be thinking about? And it's hard to speak, I know, generally to Medicaid because it does vary from state to state. But is there any sort of general advice or anything that you're seeing that's particularly of interest in how skilled nursing providers are coping with the fact that in many cases, the reimbursement for their Medicaid patients doesn't match the cost of providing care to those patients. Yeah, there are a couple things to be thinking about here in terms of Medicaid reimbursement. I, I think the unfortunate reality, I wish I could say in 2020 that, you know, Every the rates will be jacked will up, yeah. and, and, but that's uh, 
that's not true. I think, right, even in the best states, the reimbursement is below cost, and you are yeah. counting on that Medicare spend or that, that med- the, the Medicare rates to, to offset that and make you whole. That dynamic doesn't change. And I do think, right, it is a state-by-state view of, and, and clearly, and no news to your, your listeners, but it is those states that are going to be facing the most challenging sort of budgetary situations that are going to be looking to Medicaid spend on nursing facilities. I actually think, though, the bigger issue at play for a lot of the states that we're working in is not so much reimbursement, which is... It's one of those perennial sort of evergreen challenges. Okay. And as we just talked about, that's not going away. It is more of the states getting aggressive, either the states and or the managed care organizations that they are contracting with through MLTSS to divert patients away from nursing facilities and keep them in home and community-based settings. I think that's the more existential challenge. Do you think that we're going to see a lot more states moving into MLTSS? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I don't know the numbers per se, and I'd be hesitant to speculate on that. Mm-hmm. We do know, for instance, um, North Carolina actually just had a significant delay in the rollout of there. They're the kind of the, the state that is the latest to move into managed care in a big way or mm-hmm. was planning to, and now that's been delayed because of budgetary Issues and in a conflict between the governor and, and the, the state senate there. Anyway, North Carolina aside, I think they are an indicator of a lot of states' interests in, you know, you think about with Medicaid that it is the vast majority of states have moved moms and babies mm-hmm. into managed care. And an increasing number of states are starting to say, hey, we can move more complex, more vulnerable populations into this. The plans have demonstrated that they can arguably do this and do it at lower cost. So, yes, you put all that together, I think there will be continued efforts to move Medicaid beneficiaries and uh, beneficiaries in that long-term care program into some kind of managed model. And those managed care companies are going to be very aggressive about keeping patients, individuals, in home and community-based settings for as long as possible. Which is interesting because I remember earlier this year, the state of New York actually moved to take its managed Medicaid patients out of the the managed care part of the program just -hmm. because they found it wasn't generating the savings they expected. Now, granted... I think New York has some like weird wrinkles that make it a bit of a unique market on that front. New York, New York Medicaid but, is, a, is a, yeah, but it was something that of, interested yeah. me just because so many states are moving into it, and many of them are citing this move to savings, this element of we can you know do it at a lower cost and take care of this well, population. And it's, it is pitched as, and I think Ohio is a good example of this in recent mm-hmm. years. Now they've slowed down a bit, but they were a couple of years ago very aggressive about moving patients or moving Medicaid beneficiaries into home and community-based settings or keeping them there. Uh-huh. And I think it has been sold to them as this is the win-win-win. You know, it is, you know, the Medicaid beneficiaries don't want to go into these facilities. You know, they want yeah. to remain independent for as long as possible. The managed care companies can manage them effectively there, and it's going to be this windfall. And what we've seen in a number of states is that there is, even in those states that have been very aggressive about making that shift, and I'm thinking Oregon, Arizona has been at this for a long time, there is a population and a point in a lot of the beneficiaries' lifespan where 
they can no longer remain independent. And I know that is not news to <laughs> the listeners, but I do think that's you know what some policymakers are recognizing and what I think groups like HCA and the state affiliates are trying to make clear of, wait, you know, we get it. You're trying to, you know, achieve savings. You're trying to move beneficiaries, ensure that they're in the most appropriate setting, but there is a time and a place for the kind of care and services that we offer that you will never replicate Mm -hmm. in the home setting. So I do think some of those aggressive states have really kind of hit that natural limit. That said, there's still a lot of states that are way behind them in terms of that mix of home and community-based versus institutional. Okay. And that sounds like another thing to keep an eye on for next year, for sure. Right. Yeah. Again, it's not a a new phenomenon, but um, yes, the states are getting aggressive. And I think the the key thing to keep an eye on is it's not so much just the states and what they're thinking. It is the health plans who, you know, on the insurance side of things, their growth opportunities are in Medicare and Medicaid. Mm -hmm. That's where the growth is if you're an insurance company. And so if you're in Medicaid and you've been doing, you know, the kind of the standard Medicaid program, the moms and babies, you are looking at, okay, where's the growth coming from? Well, let's look at MLTSS and get into that benefit. And again, I mean, it's really state driven and it's not like that happens immediately across the country, but the plans are getting very aggressive about this and trying they're paying attention to what each other are, what each of them are doing. They're watching their peers. (laughs) They're watching their peers and they're seeing some of their peers having, you know, success here and saying, well, gosh, they can do it. We can do this too. And, and, uh, and it also is the case that managed care companies, surprise, surprise, are lobbying the states and highlighting the, uh, the abilities they've got and the success that they've had mm-hmm. uh, in other states. So we're recording this in the year 2019. I believe we'll be reaching our listeners in 2020. So I want to ask you if there's anything that happened in 2019 that you would say is either a harbinger or an omen or, you know, something that maybe indicates where the the wind is blowing in terms of where the skilled nursing industry is headed. Yeah, I think a a couple of things that... One thing that uh, one phenomenon that's interesting and it's it's somewhat borne out by the data, but it's also just the kind of the gestalt, you know, the, <laughs> the sense that you get or I get when when talking with our our clients. I do think occupancy is still going to be a challenge. Okay. And here again, you know, we can come back in a year and I could be completely wrong, but <laughs> we'll 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 do that then. I do feel like in a lot of markets and for a lot of our clients, there has been that sort of the floor in terms of occupancy and you know the clients we work with are starting to see a little bit of growth or at least if not growth you know kind of a flatlining yeah which for a lot of our clients that's you know it's a sigh of relief it does beg that question and i guess this gets back to your earlier question of like what do we anticipate uh, and what will I be looking for in 2020? It is. You see all the data, so. <laughs> yeah, we track the data, and, and it is interesting when you look at it, just kind of the pure numbers behind this. The boomers, right, are joining Medicare, but the leading edge of the boomer population, those born in 1946, don't turn 75 until 2021. When we look at the numbers, 75. If there is an age where it's sort of a turning point, that is it, where they really do start to hit the high sniff utilization years of their life. And so you just do the math, you would think in 2021, that's when, you know, the growth 
could be coming back or presumably could be coming back. There's so many factors that impact that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, all that wonky talk to, <laughs> to, to underscore the fact that you know, it does seem like the numbers and, and the, the sense I get from our clients working in their own individual markets is that we're not on a rebound and it's not this upswing and it's not, you know, halcyon days ahead of us, but there will be some growth there. I think that's been really interesting and something to keep an eye on and something that, you know, I didn't fully anticipate in 2019 that I'd be hearing that. I thought it would be a little more gloom and doom. (laughs) (laughs) So that's encouraging. I do think, just to go back to this phenomena of skilled nursing chains looking at developing their own ACOs or partnering on ACOs, launching iSNPs. And I think, you know, you and I were both at the the HCA uh, Population Health Summit earlier this week which was uh, standing room only, I think exceeded their <laughs> expectations. I see that as a sign of, no, not every skilled nursing chain is gonna like move upstream and do all this crazy stuff and launch their plan or even launch an ACO, but there's real interest there. And I think what's exciting to me is a recognition of, okay, you can hunker down, you can try and you know, kind of wall yourself off or protect yourself, but it just strikes me and what I've been pleasantly surprised by this year, and I would anticipate into next year, is the number of executives that said, you know, we, we need to do something aggressive here, and there are options, right? We don't need to just kind of stick to stick to our knitting. Mm-hmm. Well, I can't wait to regroup next year when we see how, how this go. whole Everything, thing played yes, out, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly as I uh, predicted. <laughs> I'm sure it will be 100% as you've outlined it all here. No doubt. No doubt. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for the time today. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Happy to do it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Rethink, the future of skilled nursing. If you like what you heard, please subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. And for more news and insights on the skilled nursing industry, subscribe to our daily or weekly newsletters at skillednursingnews.com. I'm Maggie Flynn, and this has been a production of Aging Media Network, Chicago, Illinois.